Give it up for Brendan. I think that's power. All right, we're here. Hi, everyone. Sorry about that delay. I didn't know I was reading the Bible. Um, but I am. And uh, our reading for today comes from Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 to 10. And I will squint as I read it verbatim because I don't have my Bible with me on stage right now. But it's on your screens, so you can follow along there or in the Bible that you carry with you. Uh, it goes like this. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin... You who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone, without comparing themselves to anyone else or to someone else. Uh, For each should carry... Uh, For each one should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please the flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit, from the spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to unpack that passage together. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you that you brought it to us tonight. We pray that you open our hearts to what you have to say, and that you open your word to our hearts. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Weird having a crowd here for this. Been uh, preaching into a camera for six months or so. So this is really uh, good fun. And uh, we are continuing through the book of Galatians. We've been traveling through that in this evening service for some time. We're almost at the end. We're uh, at chapter six, which is the last chapter. Paul's kind of getting to his last remarks. Um, Paul's described in the last uh, sermon we had from the, uh, the end of chapter five uh, about the fruit of the Spirit, Uh, Not the fruits of the Spirit, as Charlie correctly pointed out, but the fruit of the Spirit. That is to say, uh, the fruit of the Spirit is not to be confused with something like the gifts of the Spirit, where you might get one kind or a couple of um, kinds, but others will get another variety. It's not like a a grab bag. You get some of these fruits of the Spirit. Uh, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, all of which um, should grow in you as a natural result of the Spirit's indwelling. That's the product of having the Spirit, and that's the fruit of the Spirit. And the stultifying of any of those things in a Christian's life is cause for reflection and to seek a remedy for it. It's like a fruit salad. You want to have a mix of everything in there. If, there's no, if there isn't at least one glazed cherry, you take it back and you get your money back. Then we get to chapter 6, and in these verses, uh, Paul takes the idea of goodness and righteous character, uh, the goodness and righteous character that we should have, that should be in one who has the Holy Spirit in their life. And he he tries to ground it in earthly application. The Spirit makes you this kind of person. That is the fruit 
of a spirit-filled life. And being such people, striving to be such people, live like this. Live like this. And he goes on to make a few examples flowing from one to the next, starting with the verses I read a moment ago, uh, with verse 1 and 2, where Paul says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Now, this verse, or these verses are extremely important, uh, and they stick out to me in that way, because it sort of it defangs the, the fear of the idea that Christians are vulnerable to sin. It kind of normalizes the idea that Christians too can sin and can be tempted to sin. Now, this might be obvious to some people. It may not strike you as particularly important. Everyone understands that Christians still sin uh, from time to time, and sort of the path of the Christian is shaking off those habits, sinning less, uh, becoming more and more like the person God wants you to be. This is common Christian knowledge because it's preached, and it's preached because it's true. But it's a truth that is rarely made as clear and direct as it is in the text here, because the way that Paul tends to write, uh, he uses these big rhetorical absolutes, these big driving statements. Uh, back in, in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 6, Paul has a famous statement about those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, don't be deceived, uh, the sexually immoral, adulterers, idol worshippers, drunkards, lists a whole uh, bunch of different types of sinners. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, his larger point when he says this is that this is about those who are defined by their sin instead of by their savior. That's who you were before. Now you're washed and you're clean. You are not this anymore. And Jesus uses the same kind of structures when he describes sin and sin as he uh, tells the woman caught in adultery, I will not render judgment on you. That is to say, I forgive you. Go and sin no more. You were this. Now you're not this. But it's possible for someone to read such things uh, and in a kind of a clumsy way and get the idea that, that salvation is like a fragile thing, something we can break or lose if we mess it up. Uh, this is an idea that's been around since the early church, uh, since the age of, uh, of deathbed baptisms, where people would wait until the last possible moment to go through baptism, hoping to shear off as much of their sin as possible and not have a chance to mess it up on the other side of that. Um, it's the idea that I'm forgiven, so I'm no longer a sinner, but if I sin again... Well, then I'm a sinner again, and I'm in danger of hellfire again. Uh, and then and you're in danger of not inheriting the kingdom again. And when a broader reading of Scripture is pretty clear that, oh, it's, it's not that you have a switch on your soul that is like saved or unsaved, and it gets flipped up and down on whether you've sinned recently or confessed recently. It's about what defines your life. Uh, a life of a believer has distinct qualities that one should expect, thus the fruit of the Spirit in Chapter 5. And failing to grasp this firmly, uh, this truth that our campaign against sin uh, in ourselves is a lifelong one, not an instantaneous one, it's a lifelong campaign, that causes two problems. It causes Christians who beat themselves up over their failure to maintain this, the perfect standard that they uh, would hope to be. Uh, and that means they sink into this kind of loop of self-doubt and shame that uh, damages their walk with God. And it also creates Christians who kind of make it their business in life to try and scan over fellow believers and determine which of those is a real Christian and which is not, based on their observable failings. Christians who beat themselves up over a failure are, they're a problem, they're a problem to themselves because uh, punishing yourself excessively uh, leads to despair. 
It leads to despair that does nothing good for someone's faith and compounds sin in that way. And we are in no way commanded to do that, to punish ourselves as a result of our sins. Anyone who has struggled with some ongoing sinful habit, uh, gossip, angry outbursts, pornography, laziness, anything uh, habitual, they all know the cycle of trying to break a bad habit, succeeding for a while, falling down, wallowing in shame and self-pity for an extended period of time, and then finally, eventually, confessing that sin and getting back to the business of living right. But the only appropriate response for a Christian committing a sin is to confess it right away to God, because he's the only one who can do anything about sin. Otherwise, you're compounding one sin with an additional sin in refusing to confess in holding on to that shame. Uh, when I was in grade three, I was a smart kid, but I was bad at getting homework done um, because I, was, I didn't like doing homework. Common problem for kids in grade three. Um, one day I came into class full of fear and trembling because I didn't want to get yelled at uh, by Mrs. Savage, who was actually a lovely teacher despite the name Mrs. Savage, but she knew the value of a good shaming, um, and she would let you know uh, if you had disappointed her. And at the end of the day, she was going to find out that I hadn't done my homework. And I worried about that. And my friend Ben McCrimmon, he gave me some wise counsel. He said, maybe wait until she's in a good mood to tell her. And that math kind of worked out in my head. If grumpy teacher plus no homework equals angry teacher, then surely happy teacher plus no homework couldn't equal more than grumpy teacher. And I could handle grumpy teacher. Then again, this is the math of a child who habitually didn't do his homework, so maybe not the best authority. So I waited through the day until an hour when Mrs. Savage was obviously in a good mood, she was smiling and happy, and I went to her and I cheerfully told her, Mrs. Savage, I didn't do my homework, and I waited until you were in a good mood to tell you. <laughs> I said the quiet part out loud, that's what I did wrong. Uh, I didn't do what I was told, but at least I had the decency to try and emotionally manipulate you about it. Um, suffice to say, the plan failed. Um, and I began to learn at that point, when you mess up, the best thing you can possibly do is confess as soon as possible. The sooner you confess, the sooner you're free of guilt, the sooner that you are able to start afresh. And so understanding that falling down and getting up is part of the Christian life is a very important fundamental part of being a Christian. Understanding that others go through that process in their lives is important too. Since only God can see the heart and we are not called to make judgments on one another based on their, um, on their moments of failure. And Paul will add a little bit more to that later on in this passage. But the place of fellow Christians, especially those older and wiser in the faith, is to bear the burdens of other Christians. In the context of the last verse here, uh, the burdens are, are the temptation to sin and the difficulties of living righteously. Ultimately, living God's way is living the way we are meant to live, so from a long enough view, it's the most fulfilling way, the most excellent way, and the best way to live. In the short term, however, there's all kinds of moments where it's easier to compromise your walk with God than to hold to it. That's when you get the temptation. When you've sinned and confronting that sin is painful and awkward, when you've wronged someone and making restitution to them isn't easy, um, when you've made a promise, uh, but something else important or enticing competes for your attention. All of these are burdens that threaten our ability to, to walk consistently. And having fellow believers woven through your life, in your friends, in your family, in 
mentors, accountability partners, people you can trust and with whom you can and do share a level of intimacy about your life and your spiritual life. That's how those burdens become bearable. When we're too young in the faith or too spiritually exhausted to bear them alone, that's how they become bearable, by sharing them amongst each other. So those verses reveal Paul's first point in the passage. Living the righteous life isn't easy, so gently restore those who stumble. Don't hold it over them. Understand that you go through this as well. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way fulfill the law of Christ. Now, law of Christ here in contradistinction to the old law uh, that Paul has pushed back against all through Galatians, the law that the Judaizers were trying to institute. Then we get to verses 3 to 5. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. Each one should carry their own load. Now, we've gone from assisting others uh, who are caught in sin to taking note of our own lives and having uh, the responsibility to be the, uh, the genuine, uh, fearless, primary steward of our own actions. If anything, um, if anyone thinks they are something but they are not, they deceive themselves, is the language used here. Uh, that is to say, if you are pretty sure that you've got the Christian life all, all locked up, all tied up in a bow, uh, like you've got no real struggles maintaining that. Um, and if your reason for thinking that is because you don't look very hard at yourself, you don't think very deeply about your own motivations and actions, that's not a very good excuse. And it probably won't stand up to divine scrutiny. Uh, each one should test their own actions. Each of us should be primarily concerned about the moral and godly motives for our own activities, for our own actions more than for anyone else's, because we actually live inside our own heads. We can judge ourselves more clearly than we can judge someone else's actions. And generally speaking, uh, well, generally speaking, that's true. Uh, if you don't have a, a complicating personality disorder or, or something like that, where your view of yourself is impaired, but uh, generally speaking, we have a much better view of ourselves, abil ability to assess our own actions than someone else's motivations. We can't read others' minds, but you can read your own. And this is a call to use our instinct to judge and compare people, which we all suffer from and is almost always used inappropriately in an ungodly way to compare your life to someone else, uh, resulting in, in covetousness, resulting in feeling bad because they're having a better life, um, that kind of thing. What we're compelled to do here is to use this instinct in one of its few righteous capacities, to compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not to someone uh, who someone else is today. That's uh, a rule that's been popularized by Dr. Jordan Peterson in the last few years, one of his 12 rules for life, but Paul knew about it 2,000 years earlier, so he gets primacy. You compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not to who someone else is today. You might have noticed that we have this habit of comparing ourselves to other people. This is the generation in which it is most rampant because our lives are most on display to other people in social media. Uh, it creates envy at best if you lose the comparison and pride at worst if you win the comparison. But if you turn that instinct inward to compare yourself to who you were yesterday, it works for your benefit. If you honestly weigh your own actions, your own life uh, for, say, the past year, and you don't feel like you've grown or advanced as a believer at all, 
as a virtuous man, a woman of God in the world, then you know that you're not being challenged to grow. And you need to reach out to someone, a mentor, a pastor, uh, someone you trust, and talk about what you need to do to challenge yourself, to be challenged to grow further. That way, the next year, when you look back at yourself and you see the distance between who you are and who you were, you will have, and it's incredible the scripture says this, uh, pride in yourself. Uh, You will have something to be proud of in yourself. Now, a word on pride. The the Greek word for pride here basically means boasting. That's what it always means in the Greek there. It's something worth boasting about. Uh, Pride is to feel something that is worth boasting about. And usually, scripture and religious teaching mean pride negatively, almost always. Pride comes before the fall. Pride is the queen of all sins. Uh, Pride is the thing that makes people rebel against God. Almost always, when the Bible mentions pride, it is rebuking it in people. Almost always, it's saying that people are being prideful in estimating their own value of their accomplishments um, too highly, and they get conceited and they get selfish. But we have to be sophisticated enough in our assessment of language and our, um, and our belief to know that there is multiple ideas around the one word. You can become proud and puffed up, and that's a negative thing. But to have a sense of dignity and self-respect um, is not prideful in a sinful way. That's the way that you use pride when you say you're proud of your kids when they accomplish something uh, really good. That's a good thing. And when you're advancing in your Christian walk, when you're becoming more of the person that God intends you to be, and you perceive that, it feels good. It's a good feeling. It's a thing to feel some pride about. And it doesn't come at the expense of comparing yourself to someone else, either silently uh, degrading that person by saying, well, I got myself more put together than them, or suffering inside your own head because you see someone else's life and their own walk with Christ, and "Eh, they're way above me. I'll never be that good. It can happen entirely within yourself. feels good, and Paul puts it here, uh, feels good to carry our own load, to pull our own weight, is the expression he uses. And we can note with how that pairs with what he said above about how we have a duty to carry each other's burdens, and now he says it's everyone's responsibility to carry their own load. And you can see the flow of Paul's thought if you follow it. When you're weak, when you're diminished, Uh, When you're young in the faith, it's the duty of others around you to help you carry your spiritual burdens. And it's your duty to become strong enough to carry your own load so that in time, you can carry some of the burden of other weaker, younger believers that God has put beside you. You should grow in strength so that you can carry your own burdens and then help carry someone else's. Now, the NIV uh, breaks up the text here a little weirdly. If you're following along in your own Bible, they put verse 6 at the end of this paragraph, an idea, instead of the start of the next one. But it seems to me like it belongs with the rest, going from verses 6 to 10. So, Paul's touched on the obligation to assist weaker believers in becoming stronger, um, in restoring those who have stumbled. He's touched on our obligation to ourselves before God, to steward our actions, uh, to draw pride in who we are, not in comparison to others, but from surpassing who we once were by assessing our own actions and coming closer to God. Then we come to verses 6 to 10, and these are about doing good to others in the family of God. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. 
Whoever sows to please the flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Begins with the obligation to be good to your spiritual teachers. Thank you. Um, it ends with the obligation to do good to all of those within the family of God's people, especially uh, other Christians is what it means, who are a kind of family. Paul uses the term family. And a warning is set between those lines. You get what you give. You reap what you sow. If you live a rigid, ungenerous, self-concerned, uh, self-satisfying life, what they call the life of the flesh, then you're not going to be able to reap the benefits of living a life led by the Spirit. Paul says from the flesh one reaps destruction. Now ultimately one who never finds the forgiveness of God can only find a life to satisfy their own flesh. And when that flesh runs out, when it conks out on them, there's nothing left but everlasting destruction to show for it. In a smaller scope, selfish decisions and insular life where you refuse to become vulnerable enough to bond to your Christian family is going to leave you closed off, isolated, and cold. But from the Spirit, we reap eternal life. Not only do we get to live our lives getting closer to the God who made us, but ultimately we get a life after this one, which lasts forever in paradise. That's a pretty good deal. And as we sow spiritual seeds in our life by living virtuously, by loving one another, by seeking after our God, we get to tap into the beauty of that eternal glory to come here on earth right now. That's what Jesus called having life abundantly. Community that loves and supports us is part of that. The security of knowing that those who are around you will carry your burdens when you are weak. And the wonderful purpose in knowing that there are those who will count on you to bear them up when they are weak in turn. Now Paul's finished with the Judaizers he was talking about early by this point. There is no prescription of specific rites and markings that Christians uh, need to go through to lead to righteousness with God. That's something that's been purchased for us by Christ. There's no act of circumcision, there's no Passover, there's no day of atonement sacrifice that we need to cycle through. We get the echoes of things like this in our Christian tradition, in baptism, in communion, in uh, celebrations like Easter and Christmas, but we please God in our lives with the fullness of our lives by devoting ourselves to him and living his way through it all devoted to goodness in his name because he bought redemption for us. Is there someone in your life whose burdens you can afford to bear a little? To make their life easier as they strive to be upright and godly, the kind of person that God desires them to be. Is there someone in your life for which you know you ought to repent? Uh, to whom you should repent, uh, if you, you have wronged, who you need to uh, be made right with? Is there some part of your life of which you need to repent so that you can be made right with God, so that you can rise up again, look back some time from now and see how far you've come to be closer to the one who made you and who he wants you to be? Is it time that you followed through on doing something 
good, something good that you've withheld from doing in your heart that you knew you ought to do. Serving others through a ministry, for example. Uh, Beginning to give the offering to the church that in good conscience you might have previously ceased to give. The Holy Spirit is the one who guides us to the answers of these questions. He's the one working in the kindness of the believers around you. He's working through you when you do a kindness to those in the family of God's people. If we are growing, each in ourselves and in our harmony with one another, within the Holy Spirit that God has given us, then God is pleased. And there is no stronger witness for his gospel in the world than that. So let's pray together. Father God, we want to live by your spirit. And we thank you that you've sent your spirit among us to teach us, to guide us, to help us be sensitive to his uh, promptings and teaching. Help us to perceive where within our reach there's a brother or sister with a burden we can help them carry. Help us to turn our instinct to look at others and compare to ourselves. And encourage us to surpass ourselves as we draw closer to your design for us. Help us not to seek the short-term satisfaction of the life of the flesh, but instead to sow to please the Spirit. For that which pleases you, we know, is the greatest outcome for you and your children. You are the one who knows the best for us. Awaken our hearts to our responsibilities and drive us on by your Holy Spirit. These things we ask in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, everyone. Please stand with us as we continue to praise our Lord.